Let's open our Bibles to uh, Mark chapter 11. If you're now, I'm still. We're still on the series about being equipped. And equip, remember, means to be established, to be qualified, to be unified, to be increasing. And the last letter in in the acrostic is the P for praying. God wants to equip us to be praying people. We're going to talk about prayer. And uh, we're going to talk about prayer tonight, but we're going to begin. This is going to be a two-part. We're going to do the P in two parts. And our base scripture is Ephesians 4, which talks about being equipped for the work of ministry. And we define the work of ministry as Christ expressing his life through us, simply allowing Christ in us to be expressed through us. That is our work. That is our ultimate calling, is to make him known. And God equips us so that we can be full expressions of Christ. It is through the process of being equipped, it's through the work of the Holy Spirit that God works these things in and out of our life. How many of you know that there are some things that need to be worked in and out of your life? And if somebody's here and says, I got everything worked in and everything worked out, I'm good to go. Well, I want to meet with you and I want you to tell me how you did that so fast because I'm not there yet. And uh, so the process of being equipped, and, and, and Paul tells us through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, how long will this equipping process take place? And he said, till we all, A-L-L, till we all come to the unity of the faith, till we all come to the unity of the knowledge of Christ, to the full stature, the full measure of Christ. Amen? That is the work of the Holy Spirit, to bring us to fullness. I mean, the fullness is in us. In Christ is the fullness. He is the fullness. He's in us. But now we've got to allow that fullness in us to be manifest through us. John the Baptist looked at Jesus and he said to his disciples, he said, he, there, there he is, the Lamb of God, slain before the foundations of the world. He said, I must decrease so that he may increase. And so there needs to be an increase of Christ in the earth. And that increase, remember, comes as we move into a position to manifest his light. We're the ones that have to get into a position to allow increase to manifest through us. So tonight we're talking about prayer. Mark eleven seventeen. Now, Jesus has just come into Jerusalem. In Mark eleven seventeen, Jesus quotes from Isaiah 56, 7. And Mark 11 is the chapter that, in Mark's gospel, records the triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem the, the, the week before Passover. And in just a few days, Jesus is going to go to the cross and offer himself a sacrifice for all humanity. And Jesus triumphantly enters into Jerusalem. The scripture says, you can read this later on in Mark 11, the scripture says that Jesus comes in, he's riding on the donkey, they're saying, blessed be the name of the Lord, Hosanna, Hosanna, save us Lord. And it says Jesus comes in, he goes into the temple, he looks around at the temple and he leaves 
that evening. He spends the night. He comes back in the morning. And it's that morning that he's coming back. And he sees the fruit, the, the, the fig tree that has no fruit on it. And he curses the fig tree. And he says, you will never produce fruit again. No one will ever eat fruit, get fruit from you again. And he curses the fig tree and it dies. And he goes right into the temple. He sees the money changers. He sees everything that's happening. And he runs the money changers out. He doesn't let the people bring their wares in. He disrupts everything in the temple. He's not making any friends here. And in verse 17, this is the famous declaration. It says, then he taught. I want you to see it. It says, then he taught. Jesus did not just march into the temple, make a commotion, and then say, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of thieves. He didn't march in, make that declaration, turn around and leave. It says he taught them. And then in verse 18, it says, And the scribes and chief priests heard it. They didn't just hear this. They heard what Jesus was teaching. They heard it and sought how they might destroy him. For they feared him because all the people were astonished at his teaching. Now, I don't have time to go into it tonight, but this is why I give you a study guide a message guide, and, and this is uh, really going to take you more in depth into this whole, the context of this whole, this thing that's going on here with Jesus. But I want you to understand this, that Jesus didn't just go into the temple and say, my house should be called a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of thieves, and then walk out. That came from Isaiah 56, and if you read Isaiah 56, the entire chapter, you will see a very clear prophetic picture that is literally being fulfilled right, right there as Jesus is standing in the temple. And the reason the scribes and the chief priests sought to destroy him is because they understood what Jesus was saying, and they took it very personal. Matter of fact, if you were to read Isaiah 56, verse 7, all the way to the end at verse 12, you would see that Jesus hammers those guys mercilessly. But, but it's just the scripture. It's what, it's what the Spirit of God spoke through the prophet Isaiah hundreds, hundreds of years before Jesus ever stood in the temple and declared that. And that scripture that Isaiah wrote centuries before Jesus was there, was prophetic of the very day that Jesus would stand in that temple and proclaim these things. And so we're going to talk about prayer tonight, and, and, and we're going to center on this statement that Jesus made when he quoted Isaiah 56, 7, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations. My house shall be called a house of prayer. So this is what we're going to talk about tonight. We can't talk about prayer without talking about the house of God. Jesus made a declaration in the temple proclaiming his house to be a house of prayer just days before he went to the cross. So we must come to an understanding, church, of what the house of God is. 
We need to come to an understanding of the house of God in order to begin to understand prayer. If we don't understand why Jesus said, my house shall be called a house of prayer, we're never really going to understand prayer. Prayer will remain our 911 call to God. And that's not what prayer is. God is not your 911 in the sky. But think about it. Most people, I'm telling you what, I'm going to tell you right now, I believe 99.99.9% of every human being on earth believes in prayer. You might have about 1% that won't admit it. And you probably have, you know, a tenth of 1% that might not really believe in it. But I'm telling you what, I believe the vast majority of humans, the overwhelming majority of humans believe in prayer. But do we understand what prayer is? Do we understand what God has done for us in Jesus Christ to, to make us Make this reality of the house of prayer to, to bring this to reality. And the house of prayer, well, we'll just talk about it tonight. We've got, to, we've got to understand things from the point of truth. We've got to have an accurate understanding of what these things mean in order to really get the revelation in the fullness of what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. And so understanding the house of God is paramount in order for us to begin to understand prayer. The house of God is defined where? It's defined in Scripture. So let's talk about the house of God. Our understanding of the house of God begins with our definition or our concept of what that house is. Now, some people might think the, the house of God is, is a, a temple in Jerusalem waiting to be rebuilt. Some people might think the house of God is the building on the corner of Mills and McLean or the building at 7th and Davis, or the building at, at, you know, any church you want to pick. That's the house of God. But we need to come to an understanding of really what the house of God is. And it's not based on how we define it. It's not based on how our culture defines it. It's not based on how some spiritual movement defines it. It's got to be based on how God himself defines it, the house of God. So our definition and concept of the house of God has got to be determined by what? By truth as revealed to us in the scripture. 1 Timothy chapter 3 verse 15. Paul is writing to Timothy and he says, I wish, I write so that you may know, so that you may know. Does he want Timothy to know something? Absolutely. So that you may know how to conduct yourself in the where? In the house of God, which is the church. Right there. I mean, I'm going to show you some more scripture, but right there, it tells you very clearly what the house of God is. Paul says, I'm writing to you that you may know how to conduct yourself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth. So the house of God, not according to Pastor Jeff or anybody else, but according to to Scripture, the house of God is what church? It is the church. The house of God is the church. You are the church. You are the house of God. That's what the Scripture says. Hebrews 3, 4 through 6. For every house is built by someone, but he who built all things, say all things, 
He who built all things is God. And Moses indeed was faithful in all his house as a servant, the writer of Hebrews says. But look, but Christ as a son, Moses was a servant, but Christ is a son. But Christ as a son over his own house. A servant is a servant in whose house? Not his own, in someone else's. But it says Christ... The son over his own house, look at this, whose house we are. We are his house. We are the house of God. Jesus stood in the temple days before his crucifixion and he said, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations. Verse Peter 2.5 Peter says, you also, as living stones, are being built up a spiritual house. You can highlight. Look, I did it for you. You are a spiritual house. You can even highlight the word living there. You living are a spiritual house. God doesn't use dead stones to build his house. That's why he says, you as living stones... God doesn't use anything dead because everything God does is centered in life. It is life. God God doesn't recognize death. He doesn't deal in death. He only deals in life. And everything God does and everything God uses is living. That's why Peter said, you as living stones are being built up a spiritual house. A holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Just by the way, who who is, what is the sacrifice you are offering up? Lambs and goats and turtle doves? No, Paul says, brethren, I beg you by the mercies of God to present yourselves as what? Living sacrifices. There you go again. God doesn't want a dead sacrifice. He wants a living sacrifice. And so you are being built up, a spiritual house, the scripture says. Who is the house of God? You are the house of God. The church is the house of God. Ephesians 2, 20 20 through 22. Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone in whom the whole building, the whole building, not part of the building, the whole building, being fitted together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together for a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. You are the house of God. You are a holy temple. You are a dwelling place of God. Where? In the Spirit. In the Spirit. Now, you're real. I mean, pinch yourself. You're, you're, you're real. Pinch yourself real hard till you say, ouch. But, but yet, you are in the Spirit. Do you understand, church? You're in the Spirit. That doesn't mean you're not real. That doesn't mean if you cut yourself, you won't bleed. If you tickle yourself, you won't laugh. If you hurt yourself, you won't cry. It doesn't mean that. You are real in the sense that you are a physical being, but you are in the Spirit. That's what the Scripture says. 
your body, this flesh, it's not going anywhere. It's not going to leave this earth. The flesh as you know it will not leave this earth. It will either be transformed in the twinkling of an eye or it will return to the dust where it came from. There's only one part of you right now, if you are in Christ, there's only one part of you that's going to make it out of this world intact, and that is your spirit. That's your spirit. Now, we can get into all kinds of things about, you know, what's our physical glorified body. Who, you know, don't even go there. Doesn't really even matter because it's all speculation. What we need to understand, though, is that you are in the Spirit if you are in Christ. And you are a spiritual habitation, a holy temple, a dwelling place of God. Where? In the Spirit. When we are in the flesh, listen, before I was crucified with Him, before I was born again, I was flesh of flesh. I was born of the flesh. I was not in the Spirit. I was not the habitation of God. I was not a living stone being built into a habitation. I'm just dead. I'm just like a rock sitting out there that has no purpose. It's just there. But God came along and God chose me. And in His grace, He raised me up. And He gave me life. Now I'm a living stone and now He's taken me and He's going to build me, use me to be part of the, the, the building material, if you will, that's going to produce, that's going to make, that's going to build the holy habitation of God. Where? In the Spirit. Why? Because we are spirit beings. We are spirit beings having a natural experience. We're not natural beings having a spiritual experience. Our essence is spirit. That's why Jesus told the woman at the well, those who worship the Father must worship Him in spirit and truth. He said, the Father is a spirit. God is a spirit. Those who worship Him must worship Him in spirit. He wasn't talking about whether you dance and raise your hands when you, when you sing songs to Him. See, us charismatics, we get all caught up in that. And we say, well, if you're real expressive and you're dancing and raising your hands and singing real loud and close your eyes and look like you're trying to, I don't know, pass something then you're worshiping in the Spirit. But that's not true. That's not true at all. What does it mean to worship in the Spirit? If I am in Christ, I am in the Spirit. And the only way I can worship God is to be in the Spirit. And the only way I can be in the Spirit is to be in Christ. So it really doesn't matter if I'm sitting at the table eating cereal in the morning or standing at Christ Fellowship Church singing my heart out. I am worshiping Him in the Spirit because, why? Because I'm in the Spirit. Because now I have been born again. I was of the flesh, but now I'm of the Spirit. I was born of the flesh. That which is born of the flesh is of the flesh. But that which is born of the Spirit is what? Of the Spirit. Can that which is born of the flesh worship God? No, can't do it. Because God is a spirit, and those who worship him must worship him how? In the spirit. I'm of the flesh, I can't worship him. What needs to happen? I need to get born again of the spirit. Now when I'm crucified with Christ, when, I have, when I've accepted that work, 
And I've identified, reckoned myself dead with him, buried with him, raised with him. I'm born again. I am now of the Spirit. Guess what? Now I can worship God. Why? Because I'm in the Spirit. Has nothing to do with how expressive my worship is, though I'm all for expressive worship. Nothing wrong with that. But don't think your expression or lack of expression determines how spiritual your worship is. The only thing that determines how spiritual your worship is is whether you're in the Spirit or not. How did I get on all that? I don't know. Because you are the house of God, a holy temple, a dwelling place of God where? In the Spirit. In the Spirit. Are you in Christ tonight? Ask yourself that question. If the Holy Spirit affirms and confirms, yes, you are, then you are in the Spirit. And worship is not what I do for the first 30 minutes of the church service. Worship is what I do 24-7. Can you worship God while you're sleeping? You better believe you can. You think your spirit ever sleeps? You think the spirit of God on the inside of you ever sleeps? He never sleeps. He never slumbers. Does God have a prayer schedule? Does the spirit of God on the inside of you have a schedule when he prays and when he doesn't pray? And you say, God, and the spirit inside of you says, oh, I'm on my prayer break right now. Just hold on. I'll be back on in about 15 minutes. Just call me then. Uh-uh. He, he doesn't sleep. He doesn't slumber. While you're sleeping and your body is resting, I'm telling you what, the Spirit of God on the inside of you is praying and making intercession on your behalf all the time. It never stops. It never, ever, ever stops. Because the Spirit of God, God never sleeps. He never slumbers. That's a revelation for some of us. It's a revelation we need to get. Because we think we're down here on the earth beat down and down for the count and we're not going to get back up and somebody better pray for me. Listen, we need to be praying people. We're gonna, this is what we're talking about, prayer. But we are never without an intercessor. We are never without prayer because the Spirit of God on the inside of me, He knows exactly what to pray, how to pray and when to pray it. And He prays always, always, always according to the will of God. That's not what I say. That's what the Scripture says. Read Romans 8. Read the scripture. It'll tell you. All right, so we are the house of God. Do we have that, church? We are the house of God. We are a dwelling place of God where? In the spirit. Why? Because we're spiritual people. The house of God is not a literal building. It's not a literal temple. The house of God is not built by the hands of men. The house of the Lord is building. The, Lord, the house the Lord is building is the church. Remember what Jesus said in Matthew 18? He said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against me. The house the Lord is building is the church. That is the house he is building, the body of Christ. Now, we got that. This is real important. We've got to get this. We've got to understand what the house of God is. What was Jesus talking about in the temple? Now, I didn't put this in your study guide, but if you... It's in, it's in your discussion part your, for, for further reflection. But in John 2.19, in the beginning of Jesus' ministry, Jesus is in, is in Jerusalem there, right at the beginning of the book of John. And he's there, and they're at the temple, and he makes this statement. He said, you see this temple here? I'll tear it down and rebuild it in three days. And they said, you're crazy, man. It took over 40 years to build this temple. How are you going to build it in three days? Guy's an idiot. That's exactly what they thought. And the scripture says they did not discern, they did not understand that Jesus spoke of 
his own body, the temple of his body. So when Jesus stood in the temple that day, and he quoted Isaiah 56-7, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations. And he was mad. Jesus was mad. He didn't sin. There is a righteous anger. Ephesians says, be angry and sin not. Give no place to the devil. He was angry, but he wasn't, he wasn't sinful. It was a righteous anger. Why? Because he went in there and he saw what they had turned the house of God into. Because they did not understand what all of that represented. So now, let's go to 2 Chronicles chapter 7, verse 12. And let's talk about the promises concerning prayer and the house of God. I'm going to turn over there in my Bible. I, I put the scripture there in your, uh, in your message guide, but I'm going to go there just in case. I want to take a bunny trail. I don't think I will, but you never know. All right. Now, 2 Chronicles chapter 7 uh, this, this, whole, this whole book of 2 Chronicles, here in the very beginning, this is all about the building of the temple. Now, now remember King David. Y'all remember King David? King David, with all of his heart, wanted to build a temple for God. You know, they had the tabernacle. The tabernacle was the tent of meeting. God gave a tabernacle to Moses. It was a tent. It was a mobile structure. And as the cloud by day moved, they'd pick up the tabernacle, the tent, and they'd move it. And then by the time Israel became established, they were in the promised land. They established their territory. They said, we want a king, and they got a king, which was a mistake. But they got a king, and then Saul sinned against God and lost his kingship, and God chose for himself a man who would do all of his will, the scripture says, and he chose David to be king over Israel. And so David reigned for 40 years, and in David's reign, David desired to build God a house, but God would not allow David to build the house because David had too much blood on his hands. And so God told him, he said, you're not going to get to build me a house, but I'll let your son the one who follows me, he, he'll get to build me a house. And so Solomon becomes king, and God ordains, he blesses Solomon to build a house. And so Solomon builds the temple. And Second Chronicles kind of chronicles, that's why it's called Chronicles, it chronicles in the first part here the building of the temple. And by the time we get to chapter 7, the temple is, has been built, verse uh, in the first verses, Solomon is praying. He prays and they consecrate the temple and all of this. And then we get to verse 12. That was a long introduction, I know. And in verse 12, it says, Then the Lord appeared to Solomon by night and said to him, I have heard your prayer and have chosen this place for myself as a house of sacrifice. When I shut up heaven and there is no rain, or command the locusts to devour the land, or send pestilence among the people, here's the famous verse we always quote, if my people 
who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. Now my eyes will be open and my ears attentive to prayer made in this place. For now I have chosen and sanctified this house that my name may be there forever and my eyes and my heart will be there perpetually. It means they'll never, his eyes will never close. His heart will never turn. It will continuously forever be there in that place. And this is the promise God made to Solomon concerning the house of God, the temple. So let's just, let's, let's look at these promises. I just itemized the four there, starting in verse 15. God promised, number one, to be attentive to prayer made in his house. Number two, he promised to sanctify his chosen house. Number three, he promised that his name would never, never be, would, his name would be there forever. He would never withdraw his name. Number four, he promised that his eyes and his heart would be there perpetually. Now, Solomon built this temple. It was supposedly, according to ancient history, one of the wonders of the world. They say that there, there, was, there was nothing like it. It was just spectacular. And God thought so much of this temple that he allowed the Babylonians to utterly destroy it. Just a few hundred years later. Now, I didn't go on, but if, if you would, were to continue reading in Second Chronicles, you'll see that God warned Solomon yeah, these promises are here, but here's what's going to happen if you turn from me. And God basically told him, he said, this house will become a byword and a proverb. People will walk by the place and say, man, I wonder why God let that happen to that place. Oh, yeah, because those people turn their hearts away from the Lord. And that, that's exactly what happened. But the house is gone the house is gone, but the promise, the promises remain. I want you to understand this, church. The house is gone, but the promises remain. So the Babylonians destroyed the temple, destroyed Jerusalem, and uh, they're carried away captive. And after 70 years of captivity, basically in a process, God sends back a remnant and they rebuild the temple, they rebuild the walls, they rebuild this place, they rebuild Jerusalem. And when Jesus comes onto the scene, basically the temple that Jesus worshipped in was the remnant of that rebuilt temple. Now Herod, Herod added a whole bunch onto it and made it a huge thing, but, but basically the Holy of Holies, the the holy place, all of that, that was Nehemiah and Ezra's rebuilt temple. And in, and in Haggai chapter 2, verse 9, the famous scripture that we like to quote, and, and, and we quote it as a future fulfillment, that it has not been fulfilled yet, but the reality is it has already been 
fulfilled. This is not in your message guide, so I'm, let's go to Haggai chapter 2. I won't charge you for this because I, I didn't put it down on the contract there. So, I'll, But it's very, very important because we're talking about the house of God. Haggai chapter 2, do you all know where Haggai is? It's on page 1,314 of your Bible. Or it's right after Nahum and just before Zechariah. It's toward the end of the Old Testament. It's a very, very small book. It's only just like one or two pages, three or four pages probably if you have a, depending on how your Bible is. Haggai chapter 2. Verse, where am I? Nine. Haggai 2, 9 says, The glory of this latter temple shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. Now, they're talking about, they're talking about this rebuilt temple. The glory, of this, the glory of this latter temple shall be greater than the former. Now, what happened there was when they got that temple, that second temple, when they got the second temple finished, everybody stood back, and, and the ones that had been there when Solomon's temple was there, they all kind of stood back and they went, yeesh, man, it doesn't even compare to Solomon's temple. They were all disappointed. I mean, they were glad they got the temple rebuilt and everything. And then this declaration was made. It, 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 it went against everything in the natural, this declaration that the glory of this latter temple shall be greater than the former. They all just got through saying this thing is, is not nearly as glorious as Solomon's. But then God speaks up and he says, no, 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 wait a minute. The glory of the latter house shall be greater than the glory of the former house. And they're looking at it and going, well, we hear you, God, but it does not line up. You know why? Because God wasn't talking about a building. Y'all get this by now? You understand where I'm going and where I'm at? God's not talking about a building here. What is the, what is the latter house that's going to be more glorious than the former house? Was it, was it Nehemiah's temple versus Solomon's temple? Is it, is it something that's yet to come? Or is it already here? It's already here. See, our mistake is we do the same thing the Jews did. We look at everything on the outside and we say, oh, the church, she sure isn't very glorious. Look how ugly she is. Look how dirty she is. Look how beat down she is. Look how worldly she is. Look how undisciplined she is. And we look at everything that's wrong with it and we say, that's not very glorious. Surely... There's something better coming because we're looking at everything in the natural. The same thing the Jews did when they finished Nehemiah's temple. They're all standing there going, man, that just doesn't look very good. Boy, I remember the glory days of Solomon's temple. That just doesn't even compare. And then God says, no, you guys got it wrong. The glory of the latter house will excel will be greater than the glory of the former house. Sorry, God, we just can't see it unless, I guess, maybe, you know, Herod thought he was going to bring it to pass. When he came into power, he started a building program. And he built for 40 years on the temple. 
and made this humongous, glorious compound there. And I'm sure Herod thought that he was bringing the fulfillment. Haggai chapter 2 verse 9. But the reality was on that day in Jerusalem when Jesus stood in the temple and said, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations. The house he was talking about was not the house he was standing in. It wasn't the temple compound. The house he was talking about was his house. It was the church. It was the house he would build. It was the house that would have his glory, not a man's glory, not even a cloud. I mean, the glory cloud filled Solomon's temple. It filled Nehemiah's temple to the point that the worshipers couldn't even worship because of the glory of the Lord. And I'm telling you what, we would, we would love to see that happen in our churches. And we would take a glory cloud over the glory that we already have. Why? Because it's something we can see. It's something that's tangible, that makes me feel a certain way. But I'm telling you what, you already are the glorious house of God. You are already the glorious temple of God because the glory lives in you. Do you know it, church? Do you understand? You are the latter house that Scripture promised would be greater than the former house. You are the envy of every Old Testament prophet. You are the envy of everyone that came before you that saw afar off the promise, but they didn't receive it. They saw it by faith, but they could not receive it because Christ had not come yet. And you are the envy of those men and those women that are chronicled in Hebrews chapter 11. You are their envy. They would love to be where you are right now. Well, they are. They're in Christ now. But they waited. They saw, but they never received the promise. You are the house of God. You are the glorious temple. Jesus said, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations. And the promises that God gave to Solomon that day at the dedication of his temple were promises, yes, that had to do with that temple, but only as a type, only as a shadow, only as a copy of the real thing that was to come. That's why the house is gone, but the promise remains. They built another temple. 70 AD, the Romans took it down piece by piece, and do you know that to this day it has not been rebuilt? They may rebuild it, but if they do, it's going to be an Ishmael. It ain't God. God is not going to rebuild a temple. He ain't going to do it. He's already built his temple. He's not going to build an idol for men to worship. He's not going to do it. He has already built his temple. You are that temple. So the promise remains because the promise spoke of the substance the body to come, that the copy only foreshadowed. See, Solomon's temple, Nehemiah's temple, Herod's temple was only a copy that foreshadowed the reality, which is Christ. The tabernacle of Moses was a copy. The temple of Solomon was a copy. The temple that Jesus stood in was a copy. It was a shadow of the true house, which is what? 
the true house, which is Christ. John 2.19, Jesus said it. I'll rebuild this temple in three days. They didn't understand what he was talking about. But he was talking about himself. Hebrews 9.11, here's what the writer of Hebrews says. But Christ came as high priest of the good things to come with the greater and more perfect tabernacle not made with hands, that is, not of this creation. Verse 24, for Christ has not entered the holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true. That day in Jerusalem, Jesus stood in a copy of the true. He stood in a literal, physical temple that was never meant to be the end-all, the be-all. It was just a copy of the true. The real temple was standing in the midst of the copy. He was standing there as the real temple of God, and no one could see him. And he made them so mad, the scripture says they sought how they would destroy him. And yet, he prophesied in John chapter 2 exactly what would happen. He knew they would destroy him. They would kill him. But he would rebuild that temple in three days just like he promised. The house of God is not made with hands. It's not of this creation. It is made by God himself. It is of the new creation. 2 Corinthians 5.17, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a what? A new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. God's house is a house not built with hands. Remember, Paul said to Timothy, you are the church. You are the house of God. He says that you may know how to conduct yourself in the house of God, the church of the living God. The former house that was of this creation, made with hands, was a copy. It was a shadow of that which was to come, which is Christ and his body, the church. Now, 2 Chronicles chapter 2. I, I began in verse 7 a while ago. I mean, I began in verse 12. But before God appeared to Solomon, here's what Solomon said as he prayed in this temple. He says, but who is able to build him a temple since heaven and the heavens and the heaven of heavens cannot contain him? And he goes on and he says, all I can do is build him a house to offer burnt sacrifices in. Even Solomon understood. I mean, whether it was by the Spirit he was prophesying, didn't realize it, but Solomon spoke it right there. He said, who can build the God of the universe a temple? The heavens cannot even contain him. The best that I can do is build him a house to offer burnt sacrifices in. Isaiah 66.1, thus says the Lord, heaven is my throne and earth is my footstool. Where is the house you were built for me. It's a rhetorical question. And the implied answer is, there is not one. Heaven is my throne. You're going to build me a house here on earth that I can put 
my throne in? The earth is my footstool. You're going to build me a house? You can't even put my footstool in your house, much less my throne. Where's the house you're going to build for me? God says, where is the house you will build for me? And we begin to understand something about the house of God. There is no house we, we can build for God. God has built his own house, a house of prayer, and you, the church, are it. You are the house God built. Remember Yankee Stadium? It is no more. It was the house Ruth built. Well, we got something better. You are the house God built. You are the house God built. What God has built, man can't build. There's nothing man could do to replicate. All we can do at best is make a very, very, very poor copy. And God had to put it, he had to give us a blueprint so detailed, so precise for us to build it on a level and on a scale that, that would work for us. But, but it was nothing but a copy. It was nothing but a shadow. Jesus said to the scribes and the Pharisees, he says, you look for life in the scriptures, but you will not find them in there. And he was standing in their midst. And what he was saying is, it's me. I am life. I am your life. I'm the life you're looking for. You keep looking in this book. And you look up at me and you say, no, it can't be you. And you keep looking and you look at him. No, it can't be him. You keep reading. Where is he? Oh, it can't be Jesus. They looked at the temple. They said, oh, all that work. God doesn't even compare to Solomon's. So what do they do? They keep building. They keep building. They keep. Herod comes along. He's got all this money. He's got all this power given to him by the Roman Empire. He builds and builds and builds and builds because he thinks he's really something. He's going to fulfill the scripture and make the glory of the latter house greater than the glory of the farmer house, and God is just up there shaking his head. And in the fullness of time, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, the true temple, the substance that these things only spoke of. And now, when we are brought into Christ, we become his body, that's why the scripture says, now you are the dwelling place of God. You are the temple of the Holy Spirit. You are the spiritual house God is building up as a dwelling place for God in the Spirit. You are the house of God. And God has called you a house of prayer. Now next week we're going to talk about prayer. But understand this, church, prayer is not our 911 call to God. In the temple, in the temple, the priest ministered in the temple continuously. The fire never went out in the temple. There was never a time when there was no showbread on the table, when the altar of incense was not burning, when the lamp were not lit and there was oil. And even when, when that time came, there's a feast, the feast of dedication. We call it Hanukkah. 
It was the time when uh, Antiochus Epiphanes had, had desecrated the temple and they, the fire had gone out. There was no oil and God did a miracle and caused the menorah to burn supernaturally for eight days until the priest could get the oil going again. It was a perpetual fire. It was a perpetual, I mean prayer. It went up all the time. They ministered in the temple continuously. You are the house of God. There's never a time the altar of incense, the prayer of the Holy Spirit is not going up on your behalf. There's never a time when the high priest is not ministering in the holy place. Jesus is our high priest. And he ministers in his temple continuously. His eye is always open. His ear is always attentive to every prayer made in this place. Say, well, I haven't prayed lately. Well, don't worry. The Holy Spirit in you has. That doesn't mean that God doesn't want you to. And the Lord, that's why the Lord says, you have not because you ask not. Ask and you'll receive. Seek and you'll find. Knock and it shall be opened. But I'm telling you what, don't also make the mistake in thinking that because you're not doing something, praying hard enough, working yourself to death, trying to get God to do something for you, pushing every button you can, feeling like somehow you're not doing enough. See, the enemy wants to get us there and get us into a a, a misunderstanding, a deception of not recognizing who we are and not recognizing who lives in me. I'm not the high priest. Jesus is the high priest. He's ministering in the temple right now, and you are the temple. The menorah and the lampstand represented the Holy Spirit, the oil that caused that lamp to burn, that light to burn, the oil of the Holy Spirit. I'm telling you what, the oil of the Spirit that God has given you will never run dry. Your light will never go out. Your lamp will never run out of oil. The light will burn perpetually, eternally, forever. There is a fire at the altar That will burn forever. You didn't do that. God did that. He just chose you to be the building he was going to house it in. And the question is, are you going to allow him? Are you going to allow him to have his way? Are you going to allow yourself to be put in a position for God to bring an increase of his life? You are the house of God. You are the house of prayer for all nations. God doesn't dis- disqualify anybody because they're of a certain nation. Deuteronomy 23, 1 through 3 says the eunuch and the foreigner were excluded from the assembly of, of the Lord. And when Isaiah 56, when Isaiah penned those words of that prophecy, it was so, that was a radical word that God had Isaiah pen. Because what Isaiah penned in that entire chapter went directly against what the law said in Deuteronomy 20.23. But Isaiah spoke prophetically of who? Of Christ. When Christ would bring what? Salvation to every nation, to all men. Eunuch or not, foreigner or not. It did not matter. All were welcomed in. And how did they become righteous? They became righteous through the blood of the Lamb. And when they came to the blood of the Lamb, they were no more foreigners. They were no more eunuchs. 
They weren't Jews. They weren't Gentiles. They weren't slaves. They weren't free. They came into the one new man, Jesus Christ. Christ became their identity. They were brought to the holy mount, and they could now worship in the house of God. Matter of fact, in Christ, they became the house of God. So we need to understand, church, what it means to be the house of God. When Jesus said, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations, he was not talking about that physical temple. He was talking about the church he would birth, build, and establish by his death, his burial, and his resurrection. Amen? Who are you? Who are you? Are you the house of God? Do you believe that? Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Let's just wait on the Lord for a moment. You know, it was, in the, it was in the still of the night, in the quiet of the night. When the Lord called to Samuel. There was no temple there. Then it was, it was the tabernacle. And Eli was the priest. And Eli and Samuel, remember Samuel was the was the little baby that Hannah gave to the Lord. She wanted a baby so bad that she was barren. And she told the Lord, if you'll give me a baby, I'll, I'll give him to you, and you can raise him. And that little baby grew up to be the prophet Samuel. Samuel, Samuel made the transition from the time of the judges to the time of the prophets. It was Samuel that anointed Saul king. It was Samuel that anointed David king. And Samuel was instrumental in bringing about the purposes of God. And just in that moment, as we, just in a few seconds, do you realize, just a few seconds of of silence, it's uncomfortable, isn't it? Was it uncomfortable to you? I know for some of you, you're saying, it wasn't uncomfortable for me. But, But there's something about that that, 
we don't like. Do you realize that, that we've got stuff going all the time? I know I do. I was sitting in my office the other day working, and I, I just thought, man, you know, just to take some time to be silent before the Lord. It was in that time of silence in the middle of the night that God called to Samuel. He said, Samuel. And Samuel woke up and he went to Eli and said, did you call me? He said, no, go back to sleep, boy. He goes back and he lays down and the Lord says, Samuel. He goes back into Eli. He said, Eli, did you call me? He said, no, boy, I did not call you. He said, go back and lay down. And if you hear the voice again, say, here I am. And the third time, the Lord called to Samuel, and Samuel said, here I am. The things that I'm talking to you about, they're fun to preach, they're fun to teach. You can go on endless trails through the scriptures, and there's just all kinds of things there. But see... Endless revelation, endless preaching and teaching without a revelation and an application is really not worth anything. And I can preach and I can teach and I can impart information to you, but I'm telling you, church, there's got to come a time when you hear from the Lord. See, it's not good enough for you to hear from me. See, we've grown to believe and we've grown accustomed in, into thinking that good preaching and teaching is going to just drive that revelation right into you. And that's not what happens. So we've all got to become like Samuels. We have all got to have our time when we hear from the Lord and we say, here I am. We've all got to have our time when we hear the Lord speak and the revelation comes to us. And we catch, we catch what the Spirit is saying to His bride, to His church. And I don't have a formula. There is no formula. The Lord keeps taking me back to Jeremiah 29, 13. You will seek me and you will find me when you seek after me with all of your heart. And the Lord's not talking about salvation there. I don't believe. I mean, yes, salvation, but it doesn't end at salvation. See, the church, the redeemed, the saved, they, they may be saved, but there is a revelation the church does not have today, and we're running around looking for preachers and teachers to give it to us. And the reality is it's only going to come from one place, and that's the Holy Spirit. And there's only one way you're going to get it, and that's you putting yourself in a place and listening for the voice of the Spirit. And listening for the voice of the Spirit. And listening for the voice of the Spirit. And if you don't hear anything, continuing to listen to the voice of the Spirit. Amen. Let's all stand.